So we've been, during this month of January, looking at the theme of suffering and hope and exploring some of the songs of the, um, of the Hebrew people, but also of the Christian church throughout the ages. Um, the book of Psalms, just a selection of Psalms that, that weaves some of this, these twin themes together. And uh, we've looked at Psalm 22, we've looked at, uh, Helen did that last week with a, with a gathering, we looked at Psalm uh, 42 and 43, and uh, we're going to, in the next couple of weeks, look at some more. But today we come to a psalm which isn't a psalm of lament as such, but catches the theme of suffering in a different way. And uh, I've heard it said, I think somewhat inaccurately, that, that we can live um, for 40 days without food. Um, we can live for 40 hours without water. We can live um, for four minutes without air, but we can't live for four seconds without hope. And uh, obviously those of you uh, in our midst who are aware of that number crunching data having some questions about it, but it just simply points to this fact that, that hope is intrinsic to the human experience and vital to our well-being and our living. But suffering and hope are universal human experiences, and that's why we wanted to capture some of this in looking into um, the book of Psalms. Distress, pain, suffering, it's inevitable. It's part of the journeying in life. To live is to suffer. Now, suffering in multiple forms, physical, emotional, spiritual, uh, social suffering, accidental suffering from events over which we have no control and suffering from our own choices or failings. The suffering from disease and aging and suffering unintentional and intentional from the actions of others. There's a suffering that comes from, from love, the risk of love. It was C.S. Lewis who made the uh, observation that to love is to be vulnerable. If you love, anyth if you love anything, your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. So to, to live in this world, to live a fully human life with all of its realities and challenges is to encounter and face and journey with suffering in a whole variety of forms. It's a universal experience. But so is hope. Um, I came along this morning with some hope. My, part of my hope was I really hope this sermon is helpful for some of the people here. <laughs> That's kind of a, a low-level help. <laughs> but we all carry hope about different things, don't we? I hope I'll get a good job when I leave uni. Um, I hope I can pay off the mortgage before I retire. I hope I'll have a successful year in my job. Um, I hope our children do well at school. We carry these, these hopes. Hope has been described as the positive expectation of a future good. Um, it's been described as the cherishing of a desire with the expectation, wanting something to happen or to be true. So hope is intrinsic to our human experience, isn't it? It's just a part of who we are, part of what it means to be human. 
And Walter Brueggemann attempts to weave together the strands of hope within the biblical narratives in a different way. And he describes hope as something which points us towards an alternative life of social equity and thriving. Hope isn't understood in Brueggemann's work as an easy optimism, but as honest facing of the unjust structures that human beings have created and a call to lean into the deep symbols of Scripture and imagine an alternative way of God restoring solidarity and relationship that has been eroded and destroyed by the violence of empires. So hope in Scripture takes a much more substantive form than easy optimism or mere wishful thinking or expectation nurtured within us. It's something which has solidarity. It's something which speaks to the wider issues which affect us as humans. And so in this psalm, Psalm 76, the, the author addresses these themes of suffering and hope but not in the same way that you would encounter it in a psalm of lament where, where the writer explicitly lays out that world of emotion and feeling and turmoil. It's captured in the images and the metaphors that are used within the psalm rather than in the laying out of feeling and emotion. And there's three um, pictures that I just want to Think us to think a little bit about this morning that are captured in this psalm, that are pictures of God that help to bring hope in the midst of suffering. And the first picture is just simply the picture of God as a refuge. At the beginning of the song, um, our, our author says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And I don't know for you, when you think of that word refuge, what picture it might bring to mind. For me, I think of things like a mountain hut in the midst of a storm where you've been caught out in bad, bad weather and you're chilled to the bone and you know you desperately need to get to a place of shelter because you're going to become hypothermic. You're going to, um, uh, you know, be in a situation of danger. And when you spot that hut, even if it's half buried in the snow and you have to dig the door out and you get inside and those howling, bone-chilling winds are shut out and you can strip off your wet gear and get in your warm gear and climb into a sleeping bag, you have shelter, you have refuge. Those life-threatening elements that threaten to devour and destroy your life are now shut out and you've found this place of shelter. People in the ancient times, of course, often thought of that Israel actually had cities of refuge, places that, that those who had unintentionally um, killed somebody could flee to and find a safe place from um, those who would pursue them uh, intent on taking their lives. And they actually had cities that were called cities of refuge. But also they had cities that were walled to protect them from enemies that would come. So a refuge is like a warm hut in a wild winter storm or a shady tree or an air-conditioned building in the burning heat. How many of you went looking for one of those yesterday? <laughs> Shade hunting. 
and we walked down to our local cafe, our new local cafe at the vicarage, and the heat was just so intense coming off the pavement that we took paws under the shade of a tree a couple of times before we actually got there. And there's this picture that's created of this refuge of God and the intense heat, the burning heat of life that's threatening to suck all the energy out of your life, that God can become a place where the energy can be restored. Like someone in a witness protection program with 24-7 guarded security, someone being pursued by enemies bent on vengeance or somebody being pursued by others who have ill will towards them. So there's this wonderful picture of refuge, of safety, of shelter, of being re-energized, that God is this kind of God and can be this kind of God for the people who utter these songs. It's interesting with this song, there's no particular context that is given for when it was written. So it's all speculative, (laughs) like a lot of what we do when we encounter Scripture. We are speculating on many an occasion. Well, one of the situations, clearly there is um, the sense of danger, the sense of um, this this people and uttering the song, facing something potentially cataclysmic, because in verse 2 it says... We will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains shake and the heart of the sea and its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble with its tumult. There's a sense of, of danger, of imminent danger, great danger. And whether that's a metaphor to speak of this, this shaking and this threatening and this raging and this foaming that's going on, or whether it's something which is descriptive of a situation where armies are attacking um, the, the people of Israel. It could encompass either or any. Um, some scholars have speculated that this psalm was written by one of the kings of Judah, uh, Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, during a time when the Assyrian armies had, had um, charged through that middle, those Middle Eastern belt of countries that we now know, and Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Turkey, and other countries there. And the, the armies of Assyria from um, Iraq and Nineveh had swept through that region, decimating the peoples, burning and pillaging and raping and torturing the peoples in those places, and had now come and were, were, were in laying siege to Jerusalem, had surrounded Jerusalem, and um, were threatening to take possession of the city and, and burn it down and take people into captivity. And there's actually, if you read in Second Kings 18 to 19 and 2 Chronicles 32 and in Isaiah um, 36 to 37, it captures that story. Um, and uh, in, in the story... Um, there is a commander of the Assyrian forces who's referred to, um, Reb Shaka. And uh, I have no idea whether that's how you pronounce his name, but that's what it looks like phonetically. Um, And the other guy who is prominent in the story, somebody here will be feeling sympathy with this because I spoke to them earlier, has a name. I don't know why his mother gave him this name, but the king of Assyria was Sennacherib. Now, somebody this morning who's got sore ribs will kind of identify with that, just saying. Um, But the king of Assyria at the time was Sennacherib. Here is this Rabshakeh, the commander of his forces, uh, who are besieging Israel, who comes and mocks the people. 
and says, your God won't save you. The gods of other nations haven't saved them. We have, we have raped and pillaged and tortured and killed at will through these lands. And now we have you surrounded and your destiny is inevitable. You will finish up like these others. And we will starve you out. Your people, he says, rubbing, in, adding insult to injury, says that um, your people will eat their own dung and they'll drink their own urine. And he, he confronts them in this, um, this appalling way and threatens horror upon them. And the city in this situation and the king in the situation of, of desperation are seeking to know whether God will help them. It's a story which just seems so present in the world that we live in, and particularly with events happening in the Middle East at the moment. But Isaiah the prophet advises Hezekiah the king not to yield. He says, don't be afraid. Don't let your fear overwhelm you and consume your trust. You know, when you hear that um, instruction in, in Scripture, it's, it's not an admonition saying that, that fear, the reality, the emotion of fear is something that you should pretend isn't present. But that fear, when you recognize its presence, find a way of wrapping something else around it that will help that fear to diminish and be replaced by something that is life-giving rather than something that sucks the energy that you need to face the situation from your mind and heart and soul. And so he says, don't be afraid. And he invites him to trust in Yahweh, the God of creation, the protector of the oppressed, the God of Exodus, who had led them from one empire of oppression, and now when they're facing another empire of oppression, is saying, I will stand with you in this moment. And the, pe the people pray and they fast, and the Assyrian army is decimated by disease or a plague or something that happens to them. It's described as an angel of the Lord of hosts coming to that place. But it's, um, it's unclear what the event actually is, but this is the way the author frames it up. And the remnant of the army retreats to Nineveh. There's a coup in the palace. The king dies and is superseded by this infuding and infighting back in, um, in the empire. And the people of Israel in the city are protected and kept safe. So here is this picture of God being a refuge, God being a shelter, God protecting and there's a lovely um, book called In the Shelter, Finding a Home in the World, written by uh, Patrick Otuma. And again, I haven't pronounced his name correctly, but he's an Irish poet and uh, theologian. And um, he writes some beautiful, beautiful poetry. And he captures in this book this experience of shelter, of refuge, in a, <coughs> a collect called God of Watching. Let me read it to you. God of watching, whose gaze I doubt and rally against both, but in which I take refuge despite my limited vision. Shelter me today against the flitting nature of my own focus and help me find a calm kind of standing. And when I falter, which is likely, Give me the courage and kindness to begin again with hope and coping. For you are the one whose watchfulness 
is steady. For Pedrick, for the writer of this song, for the people of Israel at that time and that place, God is a shelter. God is a protector. God is a refuge. God watches over for good and calms the fear and assists to gather strength and energy for the journey beyond. Really interesting, I find, in, in the Gospels, too, that, that the ways in which Jesus is a shelter, when the, the arrows of accusation are being flung at the woman who is brought before him by the religious empire of the day, by the supposed custodians of truth and spirituality, by the representatives of God. In John chapter 8, they drag the woman who they aren't interested in her well-being at all. She just simply can serve a purpose to prove a point, to line up an argument, to reinforce supposedly a belief. And they bring this woman and say, we caught her in adultery. And Jesus becomes the refuge and the defender of that woman in that moment. And he says, let he who is, because they were all he's, let he who is among you uh, without sin be the first to cast the stone and kneels down and draws in the, in the, sand, in the dirt. And they walk away one by one and just Jesus, the refuge, the shelter, the protector, the one who stands with the oppressed is left and she is there under his shelter. And he says, there's no one left to condemn you. You know, go and, and don't fall into the, the trap again, in a sense. Go and sin no more is the way it's phrased in Scripture. But he is the shelter. He is the refuge and he is the strength. The other image is the image of a river. It's taken in verse 4 where the songwriter writes and sings, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of the city. It shall not be moved. Some of you have been to Jerusalem. Did any of you go to the, um, the spring of Gihon? Yeah. What, did, um, what was it that you saw when, when you went there, Malcolm, of the spring? Do you remember? It was the Pool of Siloam. Did you go to that as well? Yeah. Yes. So there's a background. So the city of Jerusalem sit on, on this, in prominence. On some people, it's described in the scriptures as a city set on a hill in a higher place. You go up to Jerusalem. But it has um, a key water source. It's the spring of Gihon. And... Um, as the armies of Assyria were advancing through those lands, the people of Israel could foresee a day when um, possibly those armies surrounded them. This is one um, framing up of what possibly happened and how the waters were made accessible to the people in the city. So Hezekiah commissioned um, the, the builders to work on creating a tunnel which would draw water from It was a, a tunnel of several hundred metres in length. Uh, 530 meters, I believe, in length, which was an S-shaped tunnel taking water from the spring and then through to a place where they created another pool to make water access accessible to the people living there. 
So when the army was surrounding the place, they still had access to that vital water supply. And here, there's this, this picture painted in the psalm. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Literally, there was a river that made glad the people in that city at the time because without the water, they would die. You know, their, their sources of food could last longer, but if they ran out of water with that siege, they could not survive. And so there's this picture created here of this, this, this river that supplies this critical need for the people. When you switch over into the New Testament, you find again this uh, fascinating connection to that river in Paul where on a, at a critical feast day, a feast in the nation of Israel called the Feast of Booths. Um, it wasn't telephone booths for those of you who can remember those, but it's the old word or tents or tabernacles. It was, it was a festival where the people together remembered and um, the years that their ancestors had spent wandering the desert, the 40 years they had spent moving from place to place and in the desert needing to find water, needing to find food and had been provided for subsequent to their exodus. And so they would spend time in these tents um, celebrating God's journeying with them and God's provision for them, including the water supply that they had in the desert when they needed to find it. And there's some interesting stories about that. Well, on this day, when they're celebrating those events and at this feast, Jesus gets up in John chapter 7. It's, this is recorded and it says, On the last and greatest day of this feast, when a special ceremony took place which involved the outpouring of water from the pool of Siloam, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, or whoever trusts in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those he believed, who believed in him were later to receive. And so Jesus takes the story of Israel and personalizes it and says, this refreshing, this river is running in and through me, and I'm a source of that. And those who journey with me in life and put their trust in me will experience the refreshing waters of the Spirit's presence, re-energizing and re um, restoring their internal worlds as well. The river was a lifeline, a critical supply. And Jesus is saying here, the God who made you, the God who created you, the God who delivered you as a people, the God of all creation is one who refreshes and re-energizes and restores. And then the last image is that of a peacemaker. Just um, if we look where it says um, in verse Eight, come behold the works of the Lord. See what desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. And this is the picture of a peacemaker. Hostilities are brought to an end. The weapons of war, bows, spears and shields, warships, military planes, and tanks, these are destroyed. It brings to mind for me that wonderful passage in Isaiah where this description is given of God's intention 
He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. This, this determination of God that this place of hostility and warring peoples will be a transformed place and that God is ultimately a peacemaker, the one who is the ender of wars, the one who brings um, peace, the one who brings about a cessation of hostilities and a cessation of the violence. And the people of Israel have experienced God working in this way working to bring an end to the violent, destructive forces of empire and transforming them into shalom-making energies. Three beautiful pictures of God. There are other places in Psalms where other dimensions of the human experience of suffering, with its seeming um, interminable um, you know, presence in our lives or where the questions and mysteries are thrown up, aren't grappled with here, but what is offered is this hope of God as a river, this hope of God as a refuge, this hope of God as a peacemaker at work and present in our lives to bring these things alive and real for us. So God is these things, and God wants to be these things in our own lives. I'm going to invite Helen up because the last verses of this psalm provide an opportunity for us to allow these images to come on screen for us and bring a restoration of hope in the midst of our own suffering. In verse 10, the psalmist says, Be still and know that I am God. I am exalted among the nations. I am exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Here is this invitation, having considered these images, to actually take time to be still. To surrender is literally what the stilling means. Lay down the arms. Stop fighting. Don't passively wait for something to happen, but constructively engage with this presence, the presence of God, and allow God to do that work in us that brings hope in the midst of the suffering that we face. So Helen, can you come and just create this little space for us now? Slipped on the wires. It's okay. <laughs> that didn't create a space, does it? <laughs> this is a bit of chaos. Um, we're going to play a clip from the work of the people, and it's um, reflecting on that line, be still and know that I am God. So I will invite you to watch it and sit quietly with it. Um, and then we're going to sing two songs. So. <laughs> 